Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Good morning, church. So open our Bibles to Mark chapter 12. We'll begin in verse 35. Just a moment if you want to make your Bibles uh, open and available to that text. If you're visiting Christ Church this morning, we're glad you're with us. My name is Mark. I get the privilege of being one of the ministers here uh, on our staff. And we're glad you're with us this morning as we continue uh, through the final week of Jesus' life. We've been in it about six weeks, six, eight weeks. We've been looking at the final week of Jesus' life and the ministry that he brought about. And where we have been is a, a... Jesus came in on Sunday into the holy city of Jerusalem, and he was proclaimed the Messiah. The crowd called out that here's the Messiah. For the first time, Jesus did not silence those calling him the Messiah. He received it. In other words, he was acknowledging what they were discovering, that he was the Messiah. Then he overturns the tables in the temple, and he clears out the pollution and the things that were keeping people from drawing close to God in worship. And they ask him a question, by what authority do you do this? Jesus would then spend Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday establishing his authority. And where we're at today is a moment where last weekend, uh, Peter Buckland, one of our elders and one of our staff, uh, spoke on the seven woes that Jesus gave to religious people that were faking it. They were playing the religious game without giving the sincerity of their heart. They weren't true disciples. They were just doing what they thought was required to give them status and power and position. And Jesus gave them seven woes. But he stays on the offensive today. He continues to talk to them directly and challenging them with whether or not they're open to what he can teach. You see, Jesus was a confusing person even today. People don't always understand what Jesus was about. Uh, We've turned him into a religion rather than understanding who he was as a person. We've received him as Messiah, but we've gone more toward the organizational side than the personal side of what that might mean for us. It's a confusing thing for us. We, we live in a world that says Christianity is an individualistic, peacekeeping effort, that we're just supposed to love everybody and serve everybody and just keep the peace, and that's really not true. The gospel is both grace and truth, and sometimes truth doesn't allow peace to exist the way the world wants it to exist. Christianity can also be defined by many of us as a do-better philosophy, I'll live better, I'll try harder, I'll, I'll watch my language, I'll, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this, and then God will realize I'm serious. And that's not what Christianity is. It's neither one of those. It's not just all about love and peace, and it's not just all about doing the right things. The gospel worldview is unique. It's not about moral absolutes. It's about radical grace and substitutionary atonement. That the Passover lamb named Jesus would come and die for his people. And those who would believe in that death, it would make a difference. You see, one preacher said, Christianity is profoundly liberal, and that will shock some of you. It's profoundly liberal because it abhors racism or sexism in every form. Christianity is also profoundly conservative. And its scriptural teaching on sexual ethics doesn't match up with what our world wished it would be. So it's considered highly conservative. You see, what is Christianity? This is what we've been confused about, and when we're confused about it, it turns Christianity into something it never intended to be. And Jesus has been addressing this for the past six to eight weeks. He's come to set us straight on what his kingdom truly is. Christianity is found in the cross, if you want to know what it is. It's found in the cross, the person on the cross, and the reason he's on the cross. 
When we see those three things in their proper perspective, the way Jesus displayed them to us, who's on the cross, why he's on the cross, and what that accomplished, then we'll understand what Christianity is. And it's neither just a moral absolutes or it's not just a peacekeeping endeavor. On the cross, we see love fulfill the law. We see love displayed and doing the work that it needs to do. You see, Christianity is not about what you and I do. It's about what's been done for us. And it's about receiving what's been done for us. And not just living in what's been done for us, but responding to God with love for God and love for others because of what's been offered us on the cross. Whenever you have to wonder, what is this all about? Remember that moment on that cross, that man and what he did and what resulted from it. And Christianity is defined then biblically. Now today, my text may seem like two different moments in Jesus' life that seem random. But if you give me a little bit of grace and a little bit of time, I'm going to show you how they're connected. So there's a moment here in Mark chapter 12, beginning verse 35, where Jesus establishes an answer to the question he's been asked over and over. By what authority do you do these things? Who are you and who do you claim to be? So let's begin with the first point. Jesus himself is the evidence each person is looking for. If Christianity is defined by the cross and the person on the cross, then we need to know from the very beginning to understand Christianity, we have to see Jesus as the evidence that each one of us needs. And if we get that straight, and I know a lot of you are going, okay, we came to church, we get it's Jesus. No, please understand there's more to it than just acknowledging him. It's why we acknowledge him and how we acknowledge him and what that means in our everyday decisions that makes a difference. Jesus was fielding questions over and over from people, and now he goes on the offensive again. Verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? It's a bit of a riddle that Jesus presents here. They have been asking him questions and questions and questions, trying to trap them, and Jesus is trying to show them that they've misunderstood. You see, the prophets predicted a Messiah, one who would be a descendant of David. The religious leaders then believed that this would be a human, and Jesus was coming as a man, but Jesus was also professing to be deity. He has said, when you've seen the Father, you've seen me. I've been sent by the Father. I've existed before Abraham. And they were like, whoa, whoa, wait, you're just a dude. We know your family. We know your background. We know that your mom got pregnant before she got married, Jesus. We know your story. And then there's this big moment where they accepted that the Messiah would be a man, but they would not accept that he would be deity. And so when Jesus comes as a man and he's proclaiming to be the Son of God, the problem with him is they don't see Jesus for who he is. And Jesus asked them a question. He said, even in your teaching, he quotes the 110th Psalm. Even in your teaching, David realized that the one that would come from him, that would be his descendant, would foremost be his Lord. David understood that he would be deity and humanity. Why don't you see it that way? A few weeks ago, Michael DeFazio spoke on this stage, and the question was raised about marriage in the afterlife, and who's married to who, and how is this all going to work, and it was actually probably a more mocking question than a serious question. They were trying to pin Jesus to the wall, and Michael made a very profound point in his teaching to us. 
he brought up the point that we have to ask ourselves, can Jesus be our teacher or are we going to tell him what to teach? Can Jesus correct us or are we always right? Can Jesus show us that some of our presuppositions aren't accurate? Because what he does here is he said, you have a problem with me being a man, but also being the son of God. Don't you understand? David saw it this way too. One of your teachers saw it this way. How come you can't see it this way? And here's the problem. If the religious people are actually corrected, that means Jesus is right. And if Jesus is right, they're wrong. And that's not possible. And I know we're not like that at all, are we? Have you ever fought really hard to be right and then have someone correct you and realize you were wrong and your only answer is, so? That's the response Jesus gets here. And he, he challenges them with how can this be David's Lord and his son? It can be both, but they wouldn't allow it. So Jesus corrects it. Are we able to learn from Jesus? Now, I know it's early on a Sunday morning, And you're all quietly listening respectfully, and I appreciate that. I'm going to take you a little bit deeper. Are you ready? I think this is what Jesus is saying. If it looks like a duck, and it quacks like a duck, and it walks like a duck, it's a what? No, it's Jesus. Pay attention. You're in church. The answer is always, it's Jesus. No, what Jesus just did was he said, go to the Old Testament, And see what the Messiah should do, see what the Messiah would be, see where the Messiah would come from, and see why God would send the Messiah, and then ask yourself the question, have I not done everything the Messiah was supposed to do? He has put the evidence of the Old Testament back on them. He's telling them, I am it. If it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck and looks like a duck, it's a duck. If it walks like a Messiah and it does the work of a Messiah and it accomplishes the goals of the Messiah, it is the Messiah. Can we be corrected when our presuppositions are wrong? And this is what Jesus just did. See, if you and I actually go through the Old Testament and we look at the Messianic passages, those that talked of the promised one, the passages in Isaiah, the passages in the Old Testament prophets, the passages all the way back to Genesis where God promised that one would come and step on the head of the serpent and even though he would be bitten, he would crush the serpent's head. If you go back and you take the Messianic material, you listen to what the rabbi said the Messiah would do and you do the checklist. If you do what the scriptures promised and you see what the scriptures rather promised, then there is nothing, there is no other way to explain Jesus than he's the Messiah. And all of the evidence of his life was presented. Now, we, we like to float more toward the evidences we want rather than the evidences we've been given. If Jesus answers this prayer or if God does this for me, then I'll believe. No, 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 no. You, you don't get to choose the evidence. The evidence is Jesus. That's why when you say, what is Christianity all about? Well, is it about moral keeping moral absolutes, or is it about keeping love and peace and welcoming everybody? It's neither of those. Go to the cross, look at the purpose of the cross, the man on the cross, and what was accomplished by the cross, and you'll have your answer to what Christianity has always been about. From Genesis 3 on, God would send one who would pay for the sins of the world and restore his kingdom and bring the Garden of Eden back into existence. This is what Christianity is going to be about for the rest of our lives. Can we be taught that? Or have we already assumed it is what we wanted it to be? And so Jesus has put his audience in a tough spot. You see, he's given all the evidence in the world. To those of us that are logically oriented, who want a good reason, look at the scriptural prophecies. 
To those of us that are more pragmatic and experiential, look at the miracles, the eyewitness testimony of the miracles. And for all of us in the room, look at the resurrection and the proof of the resurrection, and you have all the evidence you need to believe in the man who went to that cross, what he did on that cross and why he did it. And then you and I will understand the kingdom that he comes to bring. Not just forgiveness of sins, and not just moral absolutes, and not just peace and love, but a life, a philosophy. It's a kingdom philosophy about a king who's coming to bring back to himself all that belongs to him and to restore the kingdom that was broken. What is Christianity? It's about a cross, a man on a cross, and why he went to that cross. So when we get Jesus right, when we understand he's the evidence, it's why we've been spending over two and a half years in this study of the Gospels. Not because I can't come up with another idea to preach about. I can't think of anything more important to preach about. If we get him right, the rest of our lives will be corrected in the most proper ways. So let's bring up the second point this morning. Our belief in Jesus, when we get him right, will cost us our control. And this would be the most threatening thing. Most of you would have hoped that I would have stopped there. We would have ended early. I would have sent you out with blessing and you would have liked me. But I'm going to use all my time. Because it's not just important that we get Jesus right, but that we allow getting Jesus right to make us right. And if you want to be right with him, it's going to cost you control. Verse 37. The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. You see, when you don't get Jesus right, you use power over people. When you don't have Jesus right, people are a means to an end. You will do whatever it takes to satisfy your desires and your kingdom and your goals. You will protect you over everyone else. And if you can protect you and gain over people, you'll do this. Jesus said, the problem is when you don't understand what God's been doing, he's referencing all the way back to the Old Testament, not just the messianic uh, texts, the prophecies. Jesus is also pointing out that God has always been in favor for the poor and the outcast and the downtrodden. God has always been for the disenfranchised and the alien. God has always been for those who cannot protect himself. And he said, if you look, when you get power and authority wrong, you lord it over people. When you get power and authority right, you serve everybody, even those who never get served. This is why Jesus' example is profound for us. Because he did exactly what the Messiah should have done. He took care of the poor first. Remember, he said a doctor doesn't come for those who are healthy. A doctor comes for those who are sick. And he establishes for everybody that he didn't come and play the power game. You see, Jesus didn't use power over people. Jesus used his power for people. He humbled himself and relinquished his power so that that kind of power could help those who have never been helped, who have never been cared for. And if you go through what we've been studying for the past two and a half years, you'll see Jesus always had conversations with people who no one had conversations with. Jesus healed people who had no hope of healing. Jesus stopped and listened to people who never got heard. It's a powerful example he gave us. It's not power over people. It's power for people. And the issue of what happens when we reject the evidence of who Jesus is, is people are a commodity that we spend. 
and we use. But when people get it right, you're going to see an example of it. So if you wondered if his conversation about David and lordship and whatever that was all about, how does it connect with what Chip read for us a little bit earlier, the story of the widow in the place of worship? And I'm going to see, hopefully you can see the connection now. When you get Jesus right and you understand who he is and what he came to do, you use your power for people. You'll also use something else. Look at verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put, and he watched a crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. I want to pause here. If you've been with us since the Christmas time, you'll know that we've been spending this entire time looking at Jesus in these final 10 days of his earthly ministry to this point. And you'll notice that most of this has taken place in a public setting with a large crowd of people hearing and listening. So there he was. He sat down opposite the plate where the offerings were put, and he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling to his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. There's a couple things that fascinate me. Before we get to what Jesus actually points out, I want to point out something more profound. In a large uh, arena, in a place where probably thousands of people were migrating back and forth, Jesus noticed one tiny woman give one tiny gift in the midst of all the noise and chaos. He's being asked questions. The crowd's excited about his answer. People are milling around. They believe he's the Messiah. They're waiting for him to do this dramatic thing. He has crowds around him. The Beatles didn't understand half of what Jesus experienced. And yet in the midst of all that, he can notice one person worshiping him sincerely. If you ever, ever wonder, can Jesus know about the details of your life Remember this moment in time. He sees more than you ever imagined he sees, and he relishes every real act of worship. Nothing is forgotten by him. He doesn't dismiss anything as, well, they should have done that. Every little act he notices. But Jesus is identifying with the poor exactly what the Old Testament said the Messiah would do. He's identifying with them. He sees her actions. He honors her actions. If I can summarize the Old Testament, here's what I've I've learned when you read Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And I know you love to read Leviticus and Deuteronomy. You read it weekly. There should be a series called Lost in Leviticus. That's a series we're going to preach one day. First two chapters, and then we all skip to the next book. But if you really look at this, God's word says this in summary, I believe. When you give to the poor, you give to me. When you care for the sick, you care for me. When you care for those who cannot defend themselves, the orphans, the widows, those in foster care, those who have been abandoned, you care for me. When you insult the poor and ignore the poor, you insult and ignore me. God is saying, I am with them. You be with them too. See, Jesus is not telling us that helping the poor saves your soul. He says, if you have no room in your heart for the poor, you actually have no room in your heart for God. Because you care about what the ones you love care about. So she goes by and she's walking into the temple area to worship. She's going into the temple place where she can draw close to God. And on the way in, she makes a sacrifice. And Jesus points out that what she put in was the least amount you could possibly put in. There were no smaller coins in this. She dropped that in there. And Jesus said, I want you to notice that she gave out of her her poverty more than anybody else gave out of their wealth. Verse 
We give out of our margins. Now, I know instantly some of you are tapping the brakes and you're like, oh, he's going to talk about money. Yep. But I'm going to talk about money to get to the bigger issue. I'm not shooting for your back pocket where you keep your wallet. I'm shooting for a little bit higher. Because what Jesus is addressing has really less to do about money than it has to do about control. Let me explain. What's interesting here is Mark in his translation on this particular text points something out. That she gave more than the largest amount of money given that day, which would have been done with great pomp and circumstance, a large check or a large amount of money poured into the temple box and everybody would have seen it because there's a large crowd and everybody's paying attention to everybody else. And all of a sudden this little tiny widow without doing anything drops her coins in. A widow would have been one of the people that Jesus came to care about. Always was looking for the person who nobody was protecting so he could. And then she gave her money. But she gave more than money. She gave up control. It's actually interesting to me that Mark says in his text something pretty fascinating. It says in the English scriptures, she put in everything, all she had to live on. I'm told that a a better Greek translation of that, a more emphatic Greek translation of the original text would have read this. She put in everything, even her whole life. She gave up control of her tomorrow to honor God today. She she gave all she had. I give out of my margins. I'm just going to be honest. Past couple services, I've said, you know, most of us do. Let's just be honest. I give out of my margins. And, And I wonder if I've ever really given out of control. If I've given, if I've risked my tomorrow to do what needed done today. You see, it's not really just about money, although it's about money. It's about our soul. It's about our control. Because for some of us, giving money is not a big deal, but you're probably giving out of your margins. You know, there's some questions we have to ask ourselves. And this isn't, I'm not trying to bring shame. I'm trying to bring clarity. When you sacrifice, are you eating less than you would have if you hadn't? Are you dressing differently than if you hadn't given? Are you, are you doing less fun and entertaining things. God's not telling us not to enjoy our lives, but he's simply saying is we always side on regaining control. We always work on controlling our tomorrow and our week later and our summer and next year. And I got kids going to college and I got this and I got this and I, yeah, it's all true, but does God not care about any of those things? Or does he care deeply about those things too? And the poor we walk by and the broken we walk by and the lonely we walk by today. See, she was giving up what little control she had in her life. She did it because she loved her father. And when she did that, Jesus knew exactly why. You see, our problem is not so much the disbelief of our mind, of who Jesus is. It's it's the fear of our heart. Is he good? Is he kind? Can I give away too much? Because the world would say, it's foolish to give away that much. It's foolish to not... Prepare for a rainy day. It's foolish not to do this. It's also faithful at times to do that. To simply say, I I give out of my margins. I don't give out of my need. I don't give out of my control. You see, this is not about the abundance of our wealth. It's about the abundance of our desire to control our lives. You cannot walk by faith if you don't need faith to walk. So Jesus has put it here. Let me explain it this way. The secular person, the person who doesn't live by faith, who simply believes there's a God but it doesn't change their life, that person says things like, I'll decide what's right or wrong for me. Nobody can tell me the truth. I determine my own truth. Control. 
It's control to say, I don't want to be judged by anybody. I'll do what I want to do. But the religious person says something like this. I'm going to obey God's rules so he'll take me to heaven. Who's controlling that? Are we doing it simply so that we can say, well, now he owes me? It's control. It's control either way you look at it. And Jesus honored in front of these people that would not receive who he was because it took control away from them. He pointed out one woman in the crowd who gave up control because she loved God and trusted him with spiritual bravery. So, she was giving so much she had to trust God. She was losing control of her life and gaining a connection with God. When you go back to the Hebrew scriptures, you'll see God identifying with the poor, but here's what I want you to see right now. Look at the cross. Imagine in your mind the cross on the hill that day. And I want you to understand this. That was Jesus' greatest moment of identifying with the poor. He came as to a poor family and he lived in a poor town and he was a homeless man who lived on the benevolence of other people who cared for him. He didn't have much and on the cross, he had everything he possessed in life taken from him. He was stripped naked. Oh, all of our pictures in church because we're modest folks have a little loincloth on him but trust me, the Romans did everything they could to humiliate and devastate the person on the cross. And Jesus hung there naked, humiliated, broken and to the point of death. Jesus never more identified with the poor, the broken, and the hopeless than that man who went to that cross and did that thing. That's why Christianity is about that cross and that man and that sacrifice. But let me draw the the bigger conclusion. You see, the widow that day in her bravery was only figuratively giving her life away. She didn't die the moment she gave away the coins. She had a tomorrow because God provided her a tomorrow. But our Savior went to the cross and he literally gave his life away. He didn't do it figuratively. He went up on that cross and allowed them to take his life. He traded. The one who deserved justice got condemnation. So a man like me who deserved condemnation could receive mercy and grace. He has always chosen to go with those who needed him. And he's offering that to you and I. Why wouldn't you want to trust him? Is it over control? Because faith will call you to a place where if God is not there, you will fail. And yet God will be there. Is he good enough? And is he kind enough? Around this room are four tables and you see the lamps that are lit on those tables. And and it's, it's a beautiful imagery in scripture to go to the light. Come out of the darkness and go to the light. And at these tables, some people will be happy to meet with you because there are some folks today who have never made the decision. You saw an example of it this morning, and we celebrated. What a beautiful moment when someone is washed clean in the waters of baptism by faith, walking into new life, a symbolic moment in their life where they pledge an allegiance to Jesus and they trust him. They, They surrender control, die to self to live to Christ. Maybe you've never done that. And I'd ask you, can you trust the man? Because if it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck and does what a duck does. It's a duck. Look at Jesus. Has he ever been wrong? Has he ever done you wrong? And has he not offered you anything more than grace, peace, and hope?
And for some of us this morning, we realize I've got control issues and it may be with money. It may be with something else, but I, I control it. It might be an addiction I have that makes me feel good and it gets me through the day. It, it might be entertainment. It might be a relationship. It, it, it might be a power and authority or status or whatever your thing is. I don't know what your thing is, but trust me, I know what mine is. Today's a day that I have to lay that at the foot of the cross. And I have to say, Jesus, I rely on you for so many things, except I can... I keep control of these things because it makes me feel in power and I need to surrender that like he did. I need to go to the cross naked and empty and die to self so that I can live through him. That's what Christianity will always be about. It won't be about what we do. It can only be about what he did and whether or not we open ourselves up to receive him. So this morning, If you need someone to pray with you or you need to make a decision to become a disciple of Jesus or you just need someone to talk to, go to these tables as we sing. After the service, you can go to these tables and talk to folks if you want more privacy. You can come out to the prayer center in the hallway. We'd love to meet you and have a conversation and set up an appointment if we need to. There's no pressure. We're offering you what we believe in. Jesus Christ is all the evidence we need. Look to the cross, surrender control, and find life just like he promised. Let's stand together. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.